So do do we start out with casual conversation or with like some somewhat sort of formal intro? I I feel like Ben, this recording is going to get played. People are going to be like, "Who are these people?" Um, <laughs> you, you think it's going? Yeah, I think I don't yeah. think this is going to ever see the light of day. We'll see. So if anyone's actually listening to this right now, my name is James Orworth. Uh, I am working as director of strategy at a B two B SaaS company called Medallia. Um, I previously worked. Um, at the Harvard Business School as a fellow for the Forum for Growth and Innovation. I got to work there with Clay Christensen. Um, uh, got my MBA from HBS before that. Um, did a stint uh, at Apple doing strategy for their retail stores and came from consulting in Australia before that. So I'm Ben Thompson. I write strategy. Uh, I um, went to Kellogg Business School around the same time you did. I think you were a year ahead of me. Is that right? Yeah, I graduated 2010. Okay, so I was 2011. Um, had similar experience at Apple, uh, working for Apple University, which has actually nothing to do with universities, but I think there's more and more word about it. And then at Microsoft for two years, and it's certainly a uh, that's a company worth talking about these days. It is. It's a company going through some pretty interesting times, and when I say interesting, I'm thinking of that that old Chinese saying, or old Chinese curse, I think it is, may you live in interesting times. I feel like those <laughs> guys are, they're living it right now. So it's, it's interesting, you know, certainly, you know, I think uh, I first heard of you because you actually co-authored um, one of Clay Christensen's books, uh, albeit about life, not about, not about businesses. But wasn't the whole point of it to, like, taking the, the ideas behind disruption and stuff like that and applying it to your own life? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it wasn't so much disruption. Uh, disruption didn't really... It came up a little bit in the introduction to the book, and that's certainly part of the reason why Clay is rich and famous. But there are a whole number of other theories in the, in the course that Clay teaches, um, ranging from how resources get allocated in companies to how to motivate employees to how a culture forms in an organisation... And the last day of class, what Clay does is he takes all these theories and he, he turns them on us instead of, turns, instead of turning them on a case study of a company. And so we use the theories, the research, to answer questions, three questions that he writes up on the board. How can you find happiness in your relationships? How can you find happiness in your career? And how can you stay out of jail? And... The last one's a little, yeah, it's a little, most people react like that. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but Clay had uh, Jeff Skilling of Enron fame in his class. And so apparently Skilling was a really good guy back at school, but something sent him off in the wrong direction. So, yeah, that's the class. Well, you know, and, some say it was business school, so. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a possibility, I guess. <laughs> so, it is a possibility. So we, we will save um, the delving into uh, personal feelings and motivation for, like, episode 25. That sounds um, good to me. But, uh, but I'm curious. So, like, what, uh, I mean, I'm sure you, in the class you talked a lot about disruption. If everyone talks about textbook examples, I mean, the first example that leaves people's mind is Microsoft for the most part. I mean, right now, it is literally textbook. I mean, you think back to the, the 90s, these guys had it, um, they had it made. They absolutely had it made. They, had, they were riding high, like sales of windows, sales of office, everything. Um, uh, you know, the Department of Justice case happened as a result of them doing so well. And, you know, when you're in a position like this, when you're, you're making that much money, it becomes very hard to build something that's going to end up 
undercutting making all that money later on. I mean, that's the basis of disruption. You end up going up market, trying to improve your existing products, and someone else comes along with something much simpler, low-end, um, probably cheaper, and they pull the rug out from underneath you. And at first, that, that product or service, the disruptor, it looks like a toy. Um, but eventually, it gets better and better until eventually... It improves to the point where it's able to challenge the incumbent. And that's exactly what's happened here with the PC business. Um, and Microsoft was trying to get this right with handheld devices. Um, but they were they were looking at the handheld device as a shrunken down computer, whereas it took Apple and then Google to come along and say, actually, hang on, let's let's think about this with a completely different perspective. If we, if we wiped the slate clean and started again, how would one of these devices look? And it looked very different from trying to fit a Windows machine down into a little handheld device. So this is something that I've been thinking because... So here's the question. Like, everyone at Microsoft has read uh, The Innovator's Dilemma, um, just like everyone at Apple has and everyone at Google has, and the vast majority of people in tech has. I mean, like... I wrote a while ago that Clay Christian is Silicon Valley's favorite professor. I mean, and that, <laughs> not without reason. Everyone wants to either disrupt someone else or they're wary of being disrupted. Um, like, if a company is in putting aside the fact that disruption is the most overused word in tech by a long shot yeah, and it is sure almost is. always applied to stuff that actually isn't disruptive at all, it's sustained. <laughs> um, right. Like, if a company is truly being disrupted like Microsoft is, like, is there honestly anything they can do about it? There like, is. It's I, uh, just, it's not easy though. I mean, part of the, I mean, it's interesting because uh, like to go back to the starting point of where this research came from, it was, uh, Clay asked the question when he, was a, when he was a DBA student at Harvard Business School, what causes successful companies to fail? And the answer, which is, it's super cool and super counterintuitive is that they don't fail because they do things wrong. They fail because they do everything right. And it's just part of the problem with the dilemma is it's so insipid. It's such a challenging problem because the right thing to do looks like the wrong thing and the wrong thing to do looks like the right thing. And so everyone keeps marching up market. Now, it's also a question, I mean... It's interesting because, like, one of the one of the companies that ended up is uh, like has effectively disrupted Microsoft is Apple, and I think this is a problem that Steve Jobs spoke a lot about. And he talked about Clay um, when speaking to Walter Isaacson in his biography, and one of the things, one of the observations he made, Jobs made in terms of thinking about this problem is it's actually a question of priorities, and the way Jobs talked about it was when. John Scully came um, and took over Apple from Jobs. Uh, he shifted just gently the priorities of the company. It always had been about making great products, but instead Scully shifted it to making it about what was most profitable. And it was a very subtle shift, but that's what leads companies to end up being disrupted. And what Jobs did when he came back was he reset those priorities and made it much more about making great products. And when you think about the world like that, it's interesting because you're willing to build products that aren't necessarily as profitable. I mean, they have to make some profit, but they, they don't have to be the most profitable products. And so I, I, I think that's one of the, I mean, like that in terms of priorities, that's one of the ways of solving it. 
I want to actually, I wanted to stop you on that because yep. I think you hit on something super important about priorities because the, and I, I wrote about this last, last year, um, with Steve Ballmer, like everyone talks about Steve Ballmer being a mixed bag that, well, yeah, they didn't make any new products or breaking new markets, but they made tons of revenue and tons of profits. Mm-hmm. And Steve Ballmer himself was like, well, I achieve my, my main job of, you know, generating great returns for our shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which seems pretty – I mean, it seems like even if he'd read it, he didn't learn the lesson because his priority was revenues and profits, which to your point drives you to, you know, focused on – staying focused on your current business and accidentally or not accidentally or implicitly cutting off oxygen for the new right. sort of products that, you know – that would disrupt what, what you're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting because it begins to raise the question about the purpose of the corporation. Exa- and no, exactly. Yeah, you get some people who think the purpose of the corporation is just to is just to you know it has a it has a specific very specific set of products it should be building and it should maximize free cash flow around those products and you know there's going to be a growth period and then there's going to be a period of maturity and then there's going to be a decline period and the purpose of the corporation is to over over that over that life cycle to maximize how much money you make out of it but there's another point of view which is slightly different and i don't know if there's one thing steve jobs will teach us from well, you can learn from looking at, at like his return to Apple. It's like there's actually something more there. And from a shareholder perspective, when people take that point of view, um, you can actually see some pretty incredible returns. And I think this speaks to the earlier point about priorities. It also speaks to an interesting point about the time frame over which you look at at solving for this problem. So if if you've got Steve Ballmer sitting there saying, look, I, my job is to maximize profitability over the next 10 years, I mean, that's a pretty long time frame, but on the on that basis, he actually did a pretty good job. If you if you're thinking about it from the perspective of maximizing over 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily think Microsoft's in the best position to be able to do that anymore. But, right, I mean, but, 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 that, but that's the exact, like, if you go back to the theory of the theory of the firm or, or that sort of thing, like, I think that's, that's really intriguing here because if you look at just the pure amount of cash generated, mm-hmm. um, Balmer is one of the most successful executives of all time. Uh, Microsoft remains one of the most successful companies of all time. And, you know, if you if you want to be, like, super rational about it, like, wouldn't it be better, quote-unquote, not saying I believe this, but just put it out there, like, wouldn't it be better, quote-unquote, for the economy if Microsoft were to maximize the profit and revenue from their core businesses and then kind of fade away? Like, is it good for the economy that Microsoft's, you know, throws away nine hundred million on on services trying to change their business model? Is it good that they throw away six billion dollars on a quantive, you know? Or is it good that they throw away how many billions whenever they write down the Nokia acquisition? I mean, yet yet we have this part of us that's like cheering, whether cheering implicitly or explicitly for yeah. them to like reinvent themselves and keep going. Would actually how much how many startups would that those billions of dollars fund that would actually do something, you know, just as meaningful, but 
but in it's a different company. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's uh, I, I mean, I think naturally we're all inclined. I don't know. I won't say all of us. I'm certainly inclined to like think that you should, you should fight. Um, I'm certainly not a fatalist. And if you take that point of view to its logical extension, there's a degree of fatalism. Like, you know, these things are definitely going to die and that's not a bad thing. And some part of me, at least me personally, is like, mm, I'm not sure I believe that. There's a, there's, I mean, I mean, and this speaks to, maybe this speaks to the Microsoft mission, which was to put a, um, a PC on every desktop and they kind of achieved it. And ever since they achieved it, they've been a little bit lost. I think Apple would think about its mission in potentially loftier goals. And maybe that's part of the reason why it's stuck around. But yeah, these are, these are awesome questions and it's, it's an intriguing discussion. I'm not necessarily sure that there's a right answer, but well, at the I mean, same time, I'd back Jobs over over backing Bulma. Well, I don't know yeah, about but you. I mean, it's easy to say now. It wasn't so easy to say in 1996 or 1995. True. I mean, and you know, yeah, we may look and say that putting a PC on every desk. We may sit here in 2014 and say that doesn't sound very lofty. But when that goal was was created, I mean, that it's difficult to think of anything more lofty. I mean, yeah, sure. I, I certainly I, the reason I love technology and the reason why I get so passionate about it is, you know, I truly believe that these devices and they're all computers like can can absolutely make people's lives better. Um, I look at myself being here in Taiwan and staying in constant touch with people. All, you're sitting in the you're sitting in the valley right in Palo Alto right now. I'm sitting in yeah. Taipei, Taiwan. We're having a a, a full on conversation uh, latency free too. I know, and we're <laughs> and people are going to listen to it all over the world. Maybe um, oh, two, three, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Two or three, mom and dad. Um, yeah. Hi, mom. <laughs> and uh, there, there's like a even my mom can get a joke in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but you know, and so like actually, it was quite lofty, and you know, just on the very edge of achievable, and, yeah. and sounded unreasonable to most people, and. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I know. I know there's still a lot of hurt feelings about Microsoft back in the '90s and and stuff along those lines. But, I mean, the story as a whole is, you know, pretty inspiring. I guess, you know, I think from a this is where something that I think about a lot is the a lot about with my writing. I try to be very rational, very logical, and mm. just kind of weigh things out. Totally. But at the same time, um, something that is very meaningful to me and that I have written about also is that you you logic and, and rationality and things that data can only take you so far. Like to do something really meaningful and to have something that really resonates with people, you, you have to go beyond that into this kind of mystical world of design and right. um, understanding people and empathy and all this sort of stuff. And, I, and if you take that sort of framework and apply it to companies, um, I, I think ultimately I do kind of reject the fatalistic approach just be, for the same reason. Like there's there's something about great companies. There's there's that sort of you know internal. What's in the culture that can certainly become poisonous, can become you know skunky, um, but can also kind of nurture the next generation and bring people along and bring people up, and and not just that, but what it means to communities and having you know institutions that that people build around. Um, that believe in something. There's like a sense of purpose attached to them and they mean something to people outside and they mean something to people inside as well. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thing. And I think, 
I think, yeah, you take a look at all the great organizations, whether it's tech or otherwise, I, I think there's that sense of purpose that pervades them. And it, yeah, I, I think it's one of the, I mean, there's always, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this book called The Halo Effect. Um, this guy, Rosenzweig, I think he was a professor at Harvard Business School, um, or he's now, and he's now one at IM, IMD in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. He goes through and looks at all the delusions that, that, well, not delusions, the fallacies that basically researchers in the business space take. And one of them is to the basically, you know, sampling on the dependent variable. And I, I'm, I run the risk of doing the same thing here by making this statement. But I do think that if you take a look at the great organizations, um, whether, again, for-profit, not-for-profit, whatever, there's just this sense of purpose that is absolutely pervasive and it fuels people. Um, it fuels their motivation and... It, it, I think it inspires people to do great things. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you can you can definitely, you will recognize this having been at Apple, but it, it's, it's, it is striking how not everyone, but the vast majority of people there, like, genuinely believe they're changing the world. Like, no matter, no matter what their job is, however menial it might be. Um, and it, it, it is pervasive. And I think... You know, I, I've said it. You just said it. Um, John Gruber had a great piece last week that said the same thing. Like, the biggest problem for for Microsoft in a lot of ways is they achieve their goal. And yes, totally. And and I yeah, totally. I think that's one of the things that happens. Like, and they're there, and they they weren't very good at resetting a new one. I mean, you think about the new. Uh, the new mission statement. What is it? What I, it's like empowering people or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like, and the, I, I don't even know what that means. Well, I think I think we disarticulated it well enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I've um, no. I made the analogy before that my Microsoft. Uh, you know, there's the the skating to the puck. Um, you know, and you know, Jobs likened himself to Wayne Gretzky. Uh, but Microsoft was Gordie Howe, like the second greatest scorer in, in hockey history, who was like this big brute that just like overpowered people. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that was, that was Microsoft and, you it know, it was and, a kiss it, of death to compete with them in the nineties. Like if, as soon as you heard Microsoft's getting into it, you're like, oh dear, that's it. It's yeah. all over. Yeah. And, and just by sheer force of will. Uh, yeah, but th- that's, that's, that's what's so problematic for them right now is the problems they face are out of their control. Like, yeah. I mean, in, in, in mobile, their biggest problem is an app store is no longer a real positive differentiator. It's a price of entry. Like it's a negative differentiator and to get apps requires developers building apps and they can't make developers build apps and they can't make customers buy their product it's right and there's no way to leverage you know windows into it as much as they tried to kind of leverage windows into tablets um like they, 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 that's it's out of their control um and you know that's same thing with same thing with with the pc like even if windows 8 was a perfect operating system like the fact of the matter is you know pcs are more and more kind of specialist devices that by virtue of their form factor and are never going to be part of our lives the way mobile devices are. And that's, that's not because they're bad. It's just because they're, they're bigger and they're, they're more powerful, but they're less convenient. And, yeah. and like that, there's nothing Microsoft can do about that. There's nothing they can do with the fact that 
that computers got fast. Like buying a new computer doesn't really get you much anymore. And yeah. They only make it's money interesting, new right? Like, and I think this is one of the big things that the organization necessarily hasn't adjusted to from competing in the 90s to competing now, which is back in the 90s, you could easily, well, I won't say easily, but it was being a fast follower or waiting for burning platform was like, a, a, it was a, was a strategy that actually worked. Um, and, you know, an organization with Microsoft's hefty resources could just throw money at a problem and whether it was Netscape or whatever it was, just play catch up just by sheer, sheer, like sheer brute force, like you said. And the problem is the type, the way the world is right now, I'm not necessarily sure that strategy is effective because once it's clear that you need to build an operating system for a phone and that operating system has to have an ecosystem of apps sitting on top of it, it's very hard to, I mean, you, you can't just pay 10,000 developers, not even Microsoft could pay 10,000 developers to come along and make sure all the necessary apps that people want because, I mean, there are just too many now. It's well, not just, just that, like, but the ones, the ones that a lot of the ones they have are crap. I mean, just because yeah. they're... They're made by the C team, or they're made by an outside agency that Microsoft paid for. Right. Um, no, it, it's it's what's it's really ironic in a way because obviously this was the big advantage that Windows had over other operating systems in in the '90s, and then kind of what neutralized that was the web, right? Because the web, you know, a web app ran on a Mac just as well as it ran on Windows, and right. well, Macs never even came close to denting in a meaningful way Windows Share. It it made it a viable platform in a way that it wasn't before. And, and ironically, the you know, Microsoft, of all people, has to be dispirited that mo- the mobile web hasn't really broken through in a meaningful way because that would, that would kind of solve their problem for them in the exact same way. Um, huh. and Isn't that, yeah, that's ironic. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's a pretty, yeah, that's awesome. But, which, I mean, a side point, I mean, this is this is Microsoft not thinking clearly. Like they are still using Internet Explorer based on Triton. They would completely rebuilt Triton for Triton is the the rendering engine. They completely rebuilt it in you know for IE eight, IE nine, or I, I in IE ten. Like and it's it's okay. It's decent enough. It's much better than it was before. Um, you know, it's not like IE six or IE seven back in the day. But like they more than anyone else need to have the best possible web experience because that's their that's their way back in the game if at all yet they're still pursuing their own web engine that no one actually really wants to develop for like and no one tests on anymore yeah i know no like in especially on mobile like who's testing their website on windows phone uh um partic- in particular and like it's it's very that that would be a sign of change like right there like if they adopt WebKit, um, Apple could use the help um, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> um, if they adopt WebKit and realize like that's that's their way back in is is they need more common standards they need more kind of like being a part of the broader tech community and they've done this to a degree in some areas. Yeah, you um, but had I think I is a big one. You had an interesting post on this recently, um, Bill Gates' Steve Jobs moment, talking about how Gates was coming back and whether or not this was a good idea. But one of the suggestions you had was um, 
was actually starting to do what Steve Jobs did when he first come when he first returned back to Apple and admit defeat in a few areas because right now they're throwing resources against things that are dying and not only are they wasting those resources but they're also forcing customers to use things like IE8 or or their own um, Internet Explorer on on Windows Mobile which no one I don't think anyone really wants to use. And to admit defeat in a few things and recognize that other people are doing them better, now open source or supporting something that's open standards, um, jumping behind that. Um, well, it, it, to I, be, to be, just to be totally fair, and especially since I was close to the DIE group my time at Windows, IE is working very hard to be standards compliant. Like It's not mm-hmm. that they're being hostile standards like they were in the yeah. past. But it just it's like... This isn't a battle that they can afford to fight right now. Like they, they need perfect compatibility, not including with WebKit quirks, not just not just an idealized an idealized standard. Um, I mean, they, they're not going to win. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I, yeah. Even the most fervent Microsoft supporter can't actually believe that Internet Explorer is going to make a massive comeback. And, and and even if it was possible, the resources that would be required to get there would be so huge um, to accept. Okay, like to be realistic about things and say, okay, let's just pick one of these other rendering engines. WebKit seems like a pretty good suggestion. Um, let, let's let's get behind that and like not only do we not have to worry about building this not only do our customers not have to worry about sites not rendering properly we can take those resources and then deploy them somewhere else where we can fight a battle where if we win we actually we might actually gain some ground against these other threats that are emerging yeah yeah uh, I mean I'll tell you one thing I um, along with apparently quite a few others uh, would not want uh, Satya Nadella's job so yeah, I, I, it's it's tough, right? And I mean, this is the, this is the issue with a company that's in the throes of disruption, um, because the the things that are continuing to make cash for the business are going and are going to be the things that he needs to he needs to find ways of killing. Because if he doesn't, someone else will. That being said, shareholders want that money to to keep coming in, and it looks like he's like to fight disruption. Looks like you're actually accelerating that decline. Yeah. No, I mean, and this is the, you know, I think the thing, um, yeah, no, it's tough. The thing with Windows 8 is in a lot of ways it kind of pulled, I, I feel like it, it was a bet. And so I'm not, I'm not as critical in a lot of ways as some people, because in some ways it was kind of pulling the decline forward. Like mm-hmm. if they had pulled off a way to kind of leverage the Windows market share into a meaningful tablet share, like we'd be marveling at like how brilliant a move it was. Um, but by definition, if you're going after something with such upside, there is significant downside as well, which is you fall flat on your face and you, you don't gain what you're going for and you lose what you had. Um, and unfortunately, uh, for Microsoft, that seems to, uh, that, that that's probably close. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, the one other thing with Microsoft is, um, you know, they're making fantastic pro- They had record profits again last quarter. Um, but I mean, it's it's always a it's always a trailing indicator and yes and it drops and when it drops off it drops off a cliff when it's as a result of disruption like you go back through history and you look at the companies that have ended up being seriously disrupted 
for whatever reason, it everything looks great and it, then it's just like the car drives off the edge of the cliff, Thelma and Louise style, like so you're Wheels there. Still and then, yeah, and then, and then suddenly suddenly the ground's not underneath you anymore. Yeah, and that's the problem with the IBM comparison is, yes, IBM, well, one, IBM was in way worse shape when they kind of repivoted. Um, and two, like IBM laid off tens of thousands of employees. Like it was not a... It was not a graceful pivot to being an enterprise services sort of company, um, and I think that's that's what that's why it's easy to sit here and give advice um, because you don't none of us need to really think through at a serious level the kind of like the pain and you know the not all the other stuff that we talk that a great company can provide you know being an institutional being an institution in the community, being something that people rally around, um, that being kind of taken apart is, is, is very painful. I mean, and I, I, yeah, I mean, and that's why you wouldn't want Nadella's job. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be gnarly, particularly to begin with. I, but I wish him the best of luck with it. So I, I am curious if we, you mentioned with, with, in the book, one of the topics was culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to believe oh, something that I've said before and I, and I think is true is the idea that it's easier to change your strategy than it is to change your culture. Um, and this has been kind of a, a big part of my critique of Microsoft's reorganization, for example, and, and focus on devices. Like I, I've always felt they're much better suited to being a broad based horizontal company that tries to touch as many customers as possible, with multiple divisions. Mm-hmm. And um, not as good as being tightly focused and, you know, to the exclusion of some, but because you're focusing on others. Um, do you, Well, first off, before we get to Microsoft, do you agree that culture is kind of this immovable thing or can it can it be changed? It can be changed, but it's difficult. So, I mean, the, the scholar we call upon or we called upon in talking about this in the book was a guy by the name of Edgar Schein. He's an MIT professor and he's very well known in the field of culture. And the way he described culture is not the, you know, I mean, people talk about culture out here in Silicon Valley and they talk about artifacts of culture, like whether there are free lunches or shuttles or whatever. The way Schein describes culture is it's a way of solving problems. And so the first time people, a group of people, come up against a problem, they have no idea how to solve it. And they talk about it or whatever the process is and they find something. They find some way of solving the problem. And if it works, if the suggested solution works well enough, then the next time they come up against that problem, they don't think about it or talk about it quite so much. They're they're much more willing to just accept it. And eventually this process repeats and repeats, assuming it continues to work well enough. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to work well enough. And eventually, once it's worked well enough enough times, when people see that kind of problem, they don't talk about it or think about it. They just know, "Mm, this is the way we solve problems here. And so that's why it's so hard to change the culture because this, this becomes embedded inside an organization. Now, there is one thing that, that will facilitate you being able to change a culture and it's a crisis. So when the, the way of things working in the past 
stops working and clearly stops working to the point where if you continue doing them or you don't change something, then, then bad stuff's going to start happening. And I don't necessarily know whether Microsoft's, whether they're in this position or not yet, because like you said, record profits. But when that happens, if you, if you find yourself in a crisis, then things become much more malleable. You're much more able to uh, you're much more able to start changing some of those elements of the culture. So you see the problems and people recognize, well, the old way of solving the problem isn't working. We're going to have to find some other way of doing it. Um, so it, it, as, as Clay would say, it always depends on your circumstances. If you're starting out, then, yeah, it's kind of easy to shape the culture. Um, but as, as you've faced more and more of those problems, it becomes more and more set. And then the one and changing it while it's set and you're successful is is a gargantuan task. So um, is is like is there? It's easy to listen to that and think that oh, well, you should try to always remain malleable, et cetera, et cetera. I don't um, think it's possible though. Well, I mean, I, it, yeah, what I wonder too is a, it's probably not possible, but b, I mean, it's probably very useful to not have to always talk about such things because you need to talk about other things. Like there's an opportunity cost to oh, yeah. figure I mean, out how I, to handle a problem. Totally. And, and there's, uh, I mean, and assuming you can set the culture correctly, this is a huge competitive advantage for an organization. Um, you, you don't need a CEO or an executive standing over every person inside the organization telling them what to do. There's almost, I mean, this is the, this is the organizational version of Adam Smith. This is the invisible hand reaching down and saying, you know, guys, like this is the way we do things here. Yeah. And that can be incredibly powerful, but it needs to be set correctly. And the trouble is oftentimes these things get set. I mean, I read a post recently by, I can't remember, I can't remember who wrote it, but, or it might've even been a tweet. Someone saying that the culture is basically set in a startup by the time you've got 10 employees. And, you know, it takes an incredibly visionary individual, a leader or set of individuals to have thought through not just, this, not just the problems that they're facing right now, but to have thought through all the different kinds of problems that they're going to face in the future and, and to then. get... Yeah, and to get it all right. And if you think about it, yeah, because no one, no one seems to really talk about culture until they're getting like 20 or 25 employees. Right. And, and what you're saying is actually, by that point, it very well may be too late. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, well, and I mean, we, in the context of the book, we talk about it in the sense in the, in, in, in the, about families, right. And it's the same process, but one of the points we make is you got, you, you basically need to start with the end in mind. You need to start by thinking about the ways in which you want people to solve problems and the things that matter and the ways in which you want people to behave. And when you see people um, do something that does work well enough but isn't in line with the way that you want things to work, then you pull them up and you say, hey, that's not the way we do things here. Um, this is how we do them. And similarly, when you see them do, th do the right thing, maybe it doesn't quite work well enough, um, you, you provide positive encouragement. You say, look, I know this didn't quite work out, but the way you went about it was absolutely right and that's the way that we want, that's the way we want things to work in the future. But, you know, in the, in the heat of a startup, you know, that's, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's not easy to do. We're putting out fires, yeah. Right, totally. Huh. Well, that's, this reminds me of um, one of my favorite anecdotes. I don't know if I've, I've shared this before. It might have been, I might have on another, another podcast. But uh, 
you know, so at, at Apple, at least for me, um, you know, like if you, I, I think I've shared this with you personally. I don't think I've, I've mentioned it on air, but if you, if you created a presentation, for example, and you had like a misaligned like bullet point or a weird font or something, like, I, and I saw this happen, like you would get called out being like, uh, you know, it looks like you're clearly not ready to present. Why don't you come back, you know, next week when you're ready? Um, it was like, you know, pretty humiliating. And it's like, it's one of those things like, you know, like quality all the time. So I was recounting this anecdote while I was interviewing at Microsoft. Um, and the guy I was interviewing with who, who um, you know, his, 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 I don't know if it matters, his, his office was like a total disaster. There's a mess in there. He's like, oh, <laughs> we, oh, yeah, we don't worry about that out here. We're just focused on getting stuff done. Um, and I'm, and I'm like, I was using the anecdote as like a positive reflection on my time on Apple. And right. he took it as like a negative that I was like trying to get away from. Um, and you know, it, it, it's it, interesting, it, right? That's it, really, really interesting. Like just different ways of solving the problem. And it becomes, it becomes completely embedded inside the people who work there. And you know, you, you come out of Apple and you tell them this and you think it's a good thing because you've been inside of Apple and that's the way they think about it. And then you tell that to someone who's been working at Microsoft where they don't worry about that, but they've been successful not worrying about that. And they're like, why on earth do they behave like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, to be, and to be fair, there are, there are very conscientious folks at Microsoft. I'm sure there are slobs at Apple, but um, that, that was certainly a very, it's an anecdote that that falls easily into your sort of preconceived conceptions, um, you know, to say the least. Yeah, so. I'm sure there are a few others too. <laughs> I mean, and bringing it back to to, to your question originally, I, it's a good one. I mean, so so uh, there's an interesting distinction between the strategy and the culture, though. I mean, and the way you framed it, I'm. Uh, is it a question of, is it really a question of culture? I mean, I think a question of culture would be, you know, we're behind right now, we spend our way to get back or we throw a heap of resources at the problem to get back. And that might be, that might be one of the cultural things that I think really needs to shift at Microsoft. And this is what you alluded to in the post. It's, they, they need to start thinking about things um, they need to be. They need to get better at admitting defeat because in the world we live in right now, as opposed to the world back in the '90s, uh, when you lose uh, in a in a platform battle or you lose in an area where there are network effects, it becomes so hard to fight back that you just need to accept it and you need to adjust your strategy. And this is that's. I feel like that's a very foreign idea to Microsoft culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's foreign idea to every culture. I mean, recall this is exactly the the process that Apple had to go through with putting iTunes yeah. on Windows, right? Like putting iTunes on Windows necessitated uh, accepting that Microsoft won and yeah. that you you're not going to use the iPod to prop up the Mac. And by all accounts, like Jobs himself was by far the biggest opponent of this, you mm -hmm. know, and like it was pushed by, I think it was, you know, Fidel and Forrest or something. And they pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And finally, he's like, you know, fuck it, you know, do what you want. And, and they right. did. And obviously, like it, it, you know, arguably that was like the seminal moment in, in Apple becoming the juggernaut that it is today. 
Um, and even at that point, when Jobs himself had said on stage six years previously that, you know, we have to accept Microsoft One, he himself didn't actually want to accept that, you know, right. until until the very absolute last last moment. And um, and so, like, I don't think this is by any means a, a Microsoft a Microsoft thing. I think the thing that the culture that does tie into this is it's an it's an extremely competitive culture. Um, both with their opponents and internally um, amongst themselves. Uh, it's been kind of breeded to be that way in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I mean, Bill Gates was famous for, for setting groups against, e- you know, against each other and, you know, may the best, may the best one win. Wow. Um, you know, the, the, the whole ranking system and all that is a part of this. And, you know, the question is after, after you've lived that way for, for decades, um, can you really unwind that you know under a collaborative one microsoft sort of sort of thing i i i'm very skeptical and and yet that is a prerequisite for a functionally organized organization right and uh, yeah and uh, and i mean the other thing is it's a big change but they haven't there's no crisis so it's 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 really hard to drive that kind of cultural change. And I mean, the other thing is they were so successful in, in, in not necessarily figuring it out first, but then, then, then taking it and what was the term embracing and extending it. I think that was the way it was described back in the nineties. It was, they were just so successful at doing that. And the, the extent to which the world has changed, um, it, it it may only add to what it is that you've described. Like just because they've been successful, so successful doing this in the past. Yeah. Um, can you hear the uh, the garbage truck in the background? I can't. Did, what what do Taiwanese garbage trucks sound like? Oh, they play music, so you know when they're coming. You throw stuff. Is in that there. like an ice cream truck? <laughs> it, it sounds like an ice cream truck. Seriously. So this one, um, uh, is playing for Elise actually. Uh, oh, wow. Which is kind of the garbage truck song. Um, if, if it's on, if it's on the track, we will leave this in there. If it's not, then we will cut this out. Um, okay. For <laughs> uh, at least. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's hilarious. pretty funny. So now the song's spoiled for life for me. Um, so so yeah, my kids can hear like a symphony playing playing in the most beautiful way possible. Like hey, it's a garbage truck. Yeah, and and the smell might be associated with it too. That, <laughs> it's like Pavlov's dogs in the future. They hear fur Elise, and it's like and they screw up their faces as they can imagine the garbage smell. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I actually think I'm supposed to take the garbage out, but alas, uh, we're, we're on this call. Um, hmm. Well, anyhow, uh, well, it was great talking to you. Um, I, I would love to do it again. I think we. We met on Twitter um, about, about a year ago now. Um, uh, I actually found you. Cause, yeah, because I, I wasn't blogging then, but you were posting regularly on the HBR blog, uh, right. Harvard Business Review blog. Do you still write there much, or I I do write there, but only on occasion. I, I've got I've been thinking about. So I'm living over here in Silicon Valley right now, and there's been a whole series of events that have happened. Um, around, you know, Silicon Valley and, uh, I mean, it's almost like a class type thing. It's income equality. I mean, or in, income inequality. Uh, it, it's, it's the Silicon Valley version of um, a story that's playing, well, an argument, I guess, that's happening around America. And I've been doing a little bit of thinking about that and have a post that I, I have that's getting close on that. But I tend not to... I haven't been writing as much. Yeah, um, well, it, that... 
I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean a lot. We spend a lot of time talking about stuff that I've written about, and um, but I think what I'm really interested in this in this podcast, and obviously you know probably people listening to this know that I ha- briefly did another podcast with Ben Barron and um, Benedict Evans, um, and it was great. But I, I, it was very more like analytical focus, what's happening in the market, things like that. And what I'm particularly interested in, particularly for this kind of format where it's a little more exploratory. Um, Yes, you're what you, you you say what you mean, but maybe there's a little more freedom to kind of figure things out. Mm. Um, is thinking about more of these kind of societal societal type issues. Um, you know, my feeling about tech is you know I already articulated how I think it's such a powerful force, but it's a powerful force potentially for good, but also yeah. for bad. And when you talk about disruption, like we're kind of witnessing the disruption of like America itself and and the developed world itself and actually the entire world itself. I mean, why limit it, you know, where entire industries and entire like classes of people, entire swaths of the country, you know, over the last two decades have been uprooted and is only accelerating. And like, this is a really big deal. And then like, and it's like Silicon Valley in general has, has kind of like, Oh, we're here and it's great. And it's sunny and 70 every day. Mm. And it's easier to just not think about this stuff. Yeah, but and I, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. The problem, and I, well, I th- the problem is if we don't think about it, if we in the industry don't think about it, and if we aren't proactive in talking about it and, like, having a point of view about this, like, someone out there will have a point of view. And, and it will come crashing down, whether it be through regulation, whether it be through mass protests, whether it be through all this sort of stuff. And... So, you know, that's, that's a huge thing that I hope that I, I'm glad to hear you're working on that. Um, and I hope we spend a lot of time not just talking about the nuts and bolts that I write about, you know, every day and that I would have talked about in previous podcasts, but kind of more exploring some of the more societal impact of technology and, and what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and to be fair to you as well, you also have some really interesting stuff on strategy that's not just nuts and bolts, though there's lots of value in in that in the kind of detailed analysis you do. Like one of my favorite posts that you wrote was about friction and how the elimination of friction has enabled what's happened with the NSA and, and the collection of data. Now it's just so much easier to do it. So I think this is rich grounds for exploration and I'm looking forward to doing it. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, you can find me at uh, strategery, S-T-R-A-T-E-C-H-E-R-Y.com or I'm monkbent on Twitter, M-O-N-K-B-E-N-T. And you? And I'm James Allworth. So that's one word, J-A-M-E-S-A-L-L-W-O-R-T-H. And we have a Twitter account for the podcast too. We do. We, uh, yeah, it's uh, so we're going Exponent FM, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T-F-M. Um, and uh, I, I think I bought Exponent.FM, the URL. So I hope I did. Uh, we yeah. will find out by the time this is posted. Yeah, maybe we should check that before we post the <laughs> podcast. Cool. Well, uh, excellent. Well, good conversation. I look forward to talking to you soon. Awesome, Ben. Thanks.